I do think that most people know what their real calling is, you know? But as uh, you know, my idea of this thing called resistance, the, the, the capital R, the negative force of self-sabotage that's out there is working against you all the time so that you might say to yourself, you know, I know I should start a nonprofit. I've, I've always wanted to help people, the homeless, or I wanted to, to help uh, health care professionals, or, I've, you know, I've wanted to dance. I've wanted to play, the, to be a concert pianist. But immediately the voice comes into your head that says, you know, you're not worthy. Why you? Who do you think you are that you could possibly do that? Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Stephen Pressfield. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. And now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to a hundred percent more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family and I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. Boy, do I have an interview for you today. Stephen Pressfield is the author of multiple books, including The Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, The Afghan Campaign, the Lion's Gate, The War of Art, Turning Pro, lots of books, many of them bestsellers and just legendary books. But more importantly, his story is fascinating. He was a writer for 17 years before he even ever earned his first penny, which was just a $3,500 option on a screenplay that was never even produced. He wrote for 27 years, almost 30 years before he got his first novel. And during that time, he worked 21 different jobs in 11 different states and his story is a long and winding story of struggle and failure and adversity and setback that has ultimately led him to this place where he can speak 
from a from a pedestal of having dealt with adversity and failure and truly chased his passion. But listen, he's not the type of person to say, quit your job and go all in. Now, he'll tell you to go all in, but he's going to tell you to do it in the right way and to to dedicate yourself to your work. And he's going to tell you to uh, just show up and, and start before you're ready. And like he says, and he says this in the interview, he says, put your ass where your heart wants to be. And so it's some tough love and it's a fascinating story and it is absolutely inspiring. And I guarantee you will be moved to take action after listening to this. So uh, if you want to grab the action plan for that matter, you can go to jimharshawjr.com slash action, grab the action plan from this episode. Uh, And then if you want to grab time with me on my calendar, if you want to have a free clarity coaching call, you can grab time on my calendar. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash apply. And that's it for me. Let's get to my interview with Stephen Pressfield. Steve, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me, Jim. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for making time. So let's just start with this. I gave the audience a little bit of a bio before uh, before you and I talked here, but why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about, just give us the sort of, you know, where you grew up and sort of the short version of, of how you got from there to where you're at now. All right. I grew up in kind of a normal uh, Ozzie and Harriet type of uh, upbringing in the suburbs of New York City. I went to Duke University and... Um, started to try to write at kind of a young age. And uh, it was the worst mistake I ever made and my life completely fell apart at that point. (laughs) I wound up doing kind of, I don't know, seven or eight years kind of in the wilderness, going all back and forth across the country, working many, many different jobs. And finally, like 30 years later, I, uh, I got my first book published after about a 10 year stint as a screenwriter in Hollywood. And um, I, th- I think I was like 55 when my first book got published. So uh, since then, I've been, you know, steady, you know, a, a regular working writer that's, you know, able to pay the rent that way. So many, many years in the wilderness before that. I live in Los Angeles now. You say that was a mistake. What do you mean by that? You mean writing the book the first time, the first yeah. book? Yeah, well, getting into writing, right? You say, yeah, uh, uh, you know, getting well, into writing was- it. It was a mistake. I'll, I'll give you the kind of the longer version of the story. Sure. I was, uh, you know, I got out of college and I moved, got married, moved to New York, and I worked at an, at an ad agency. I got a job as a copywriter at uh, Benton and Bowles, if you've ever heard of that place. And I had a boss named Ed Hannibal, and he quit to write a novel, and the novel was a big success. And uh, it was called Chocolate Days, Popsicle Weeks. You could look it up. So this writing thing must be easy, right? You, you quit your job and you write a novel and, and it's a success. It must be easy, exactly. right? Exactly. So I said, well, shit, I'll do that too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so uh, the, the big mistake was that I was not even remotely prepared to bite that bullet at that time. I mean, I had no clue what a novel was, what the theme was, what character, I, you know, and so the, the experience of sort of a year of solitary slogging, really, I guess you'd call it a mental breakdown or something. I just, it was just more than I could handle. And I sort of, you know, what the psychiatrists call act out. You know, I blew up my marriage, blew up everything and, and uh, you know, started out on the road after that. So that's why I say it was a big mistake. Actually, if I'm serious, I, I don't think it was a mistake at all. Sure. It just kind of propelled me into 
the you know the hero's journey and uh, all the pain but if i hadn't done that you know i wouldn't have ever succeeded in the end which is kind of right what you're talking about jim and on this podcast yeah that's the process so yeah see why did you keep writing i mean you quit your job and you committed to that and failed why did you keep going for for so many years i mean almost 30 years right before you've published your first novel I mean, many people, my friends and family asked me that question many, many times. And I did too. It's like, why are you keep doing this? Because what would sort of happen along the way is, you know, I'd work various jobs and then I'd go back to advertising. I'd work in New York and I'd, and I just save money to, to quit and write again. And I'd go in and tell my boss I was leaving. I was going to write another novel. And I wound up writing three that never got published at all at all. And uh, at that time, this happened again and again, you know, my boss who would usually be a friend by that point would say, well, look, don't throw your life away. We love you here. We'll give you a raise. We'll give you a promotion. Da, 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 da. Why are you, you know, don't throw your life away. And I would go home and agonize over that. It's like, cause it made so much sense. Why am I, you know, but you know, I believe in, in that inhering spirit, the daemon and my daemon just wouldn't let me, stop you know i really many times i thought i'm just crazy to be doing this but i just couldn't stop i could i would i would get too depressed if i tried to you know play it safe or take a office job or something i would just be so depressed at the end of the day that i just couldn't stand it you know and the only thing that worked for me was to keep trying to to write you know so i do it at night i do it early in the morning so you could have gone the comfortable path but you didn't choose the comfortable path. Yeah, but uh, it was just really sort of psychologically impossible for me, Jim. You know, I just was, I get too depressed. Why? I mean, you talk about finding your muse and, and following that. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who, who either don't know what theirs is, right? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what the muse is, right? For those who haven't really heard that term or use that term much. But a lot of people who don't really know what they're meant to do, or maybe they're, maybe they're fearful of it, maybe they're blocking it, maybe you kind of know deep down, but they're stuffing it down. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I do think that most people know what their real calling is, you know? But as, uh, you know, my idea of this thing called resistance, the, ne- the, with the capital R, the negative force of self-sabotage that's out there, is working against you all the time so that you might say to yourself, you know, I know I should start a nonprofit. I've, I've always wanted to help people, the homeless, or I wanted to, to help uh, health care professionals, or I've, you know, I've wanted to dance. I've wanted to play the, be a concert pianist, but immediately the voice comes into your head that says, you know, you're not worthy. Why you, who do you think you are that you could possibly do that? You've got a wife, you've got children, you've got a mortgage and, you know, you'll never, there's a, these ideas that you think are so great. They've been done a million times before much better than you, et cetera, et cetera. So that voice kind of comes out and we give that voice credence, you know, because a lot of times it makes tremendous sense. It sounds logical. A lot of times. Why would Herman Melville think, you know, I'm going to write Moby Dick, right? I mean, so I, but I do think that that quote unquote, that still small voice that you hear when you're silent, that kind of tells you where, what you should be doing. I think people, everybody has it, but we've sort of 
allowed the background noise to drown it out, you know, a lot, a lot of times, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I always knew that this was what I should be doing, you know, writing. When I think back on that, I would say rather than courage, it was like stupidity. You know, they <laughs> always say you have to be, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be arrogant and ignorant, right? Yeah. Arrogant enough to think you can do it and ignorant enough to have no clue of how difficult it is. So, I, in other words, I don't want to give myself credit for courage. I was just too <laughs> dumb to, to know better. You know, a friend of mine, uh, a, a late friend of mine, unfortunately, Ty Moore, he was a four-time Pennsylvania State Wrestling Champion, just a, a legend in the sport of wrestling, one of the greatest high school wrestlers of all time. But he used to always tell me that you have to be dumb enough to believe, right? He had to be dumb <laughs> enough to believe that he could achieve something that few others ever have accomplished. And you think about that when you, when you look at elite performers, you know, you talk about Herman Melville, you think about Tom Brady in football, right? You think about a guy who yeah. didn't even start his whole career at Michigan and he goes on to be, and he's selected, uh, I forget what round, late, late yeah, in the draft. 286 or two, something Yeah, like that's that. right. Exactly. Almost 300, yeah. right? In the draft. And, now, and he's, he's the GOAT, right? He's the greatest of all time. As much as it pains me, as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, as much as it pains me to say that, <laughs> Tom Brady is the GOAT. And, um, but you have to be dumb enough to believe. And you, know, you have to think that, that somebody like him, somebody like yourself, it, it, you, know, you, you had those voices too. I mean, did you have those voices telling you, or, or maybe you didn't, but did you have those voices saying, why me? Like, who am I to write a great book like The Legend of Bagger Vance or Gates of Fire or any of these amazing books you've written? Definitely. And, and I really feel, you know, and that uh, I don't really believe of myself that I have any particular talent. I mean, you know, a modicum of talent. But I think you can relate what your story about your wrestling career, Jim. I just, you know, hard work does pay off, you know. And just sort of beating your head into the wall enough times, you know, you can sort of cobble something together that that works if you're lucky. Are you saying we have to put our ego aside? Because, you know, I think a lot of people do things because of ego. And I just speak a little bit personally about myself. When I finally let go for myself of the outcome of being an All-American wrestler, when I finally let go of, to be honest, you know, building a business brand and, and really started focusing on, you know, the process, that's when success came, right? And, and so is, is it an ego thing, you think, sometimes, or a lot of times holding us back? That's a really good question, Jim. I th and I do think it's true. I think I'm just, uh, as you're asking me that, I'm kind of rolling it over in my mind, you know, and I'm thinking that, um, you know, I wrote like three novels that took like forever, it took me like 15 years to do this all told that never sold, that were just not good enough, even if I pull them out of the drawer now and, you know, wishfully thinking, oh, maybe I, you know, they just stink, you know? And I think the quality that they had was they were really centered in, in the ego. It was really me sort of trying to show off, you know? And I was so wedded to let these things succeed, you know? Please let them succeed, you know? Because I desperately was desperately sort of insecure and, and felt like if only this book works, then I'll feel like I'm worthy of something, you know? And it really wasn't until sort of like what you said, until I sort of gave up that I kind of found a voice that I'd been looking for all that time. And uh, so, yeah, I do think certainly for a writer, getting the ego out of the way, or for me at least, was a real breakthrough. 
So as you're going down your path, you were, well, I think, a U.S. Marine, an advertising copywriter, a school teacher, truck driver, bartender, oil field roustabout, attendant in a, a mental hospital, a screenwriter. You, you've got, had so many other you know, jobs along the way. Like, what were you thinking along that process? Were you thinking someday I'm going to be you know, the Stephen Pressfield that we know today? Uh, were you thinking that? Were you hoping that? Were you, did you believe that? Or did that even, did, did that matter? I know at some level it didn't matter because you were just doing the thing that you loved to do, but you had so many of these other jobs along the way that, you know, that you were doing it, that it sounds like to, to keep the lights on, right? It's another, that's a great question, Jim. I do think like, I really feel like when I sort of uh, was wandering in the wilderness, so to speak, I mean, I had a, a good education. I came from a good family. I was, you know, had all the, the, the background that you would have to succeed. But I felt like at a certain point, I just, I dropped out of the middle class, you know, not deliberately. I didn't want to, but the bottom sort of dropped out for me. And I kind of tumbled into this other world where I knew, and I tried to, I couldn't get a job back in the sort of white collar world. You know, I would walk in the door and people could just smell smell it coming off of me, whatever it was, you know, a kind of a sense of defeat or this kid's crazy. He's, he's lost. He's, you know, whatever. So I found myself sort of in the world of scraping around on the street, you know, and working in the oil fields was and stuff like that was not like a choice. Like I said, Oh, I want to go there and do that. It was like, there was no other place that I could get, you know, those are the kind of jobs where you just walk in the door and if you're breathing, you know, they put you on a crew, that kind of thing. So at, at that, for those kind of years, in the back of my mind, I always had my typewriter with me. I was living in my van at the time and I always had my typewriter in the back of the thing, but I had completely given up. I thought on ever, I never had that dream of, oh, I'm going to be a writer. I thought if I can just find a job, one of the things when I was driving trucks, I thought, this is a, I like it. I can do this. Let me just find a job or I can just pay the rent and I'll just be a normal person and live in a little house and, you know, find a little girl, whatever, you know? And, uh, but that didn't work for me either. Cause once I finally would get to the point where I could really do it, suddenly I became like so bored and so restless and so down on myself. And then I'd, you know, pull the plug again. And, uh, so no, that idea that I was someday going to succeed, I really given up on that. So you, it sounds like you, you couldn't get settled, right? I, think, I feel like a lot of folks know that there's more potential inside of them. They know that there's another level. They know that there's this thing that they want to pursue, but there's fear and there's doubt, right? In your book, Turning Pro, you talk about the difference between a professional and an amateur. Can you talk about that? The difference between a professional and an amateur? And like, when do you feel like you made that switch? Really, it's a psychological switch, I think. But you know, when do you feel like you made that, that switch from amateur to pro? And how does that, how did that impact your career? Um, it's another great question, Jim. And I think I wrote about this in the War of Art. I think this was, I was living in a halfway house in Durham, North Carolina, where people came out of mental institutions on their way back into the real world, you know? And I think I was paying like 20 bucks a month and living in this basement room and was just totally down for the count. And I had a dream. And in the dream, I woke up and my shirts 
were all folded neatly in a drawer. This is the dream now, not in real life. <laughs> and the room was all put in order. And even I had my little cowboy boots that I wore and they were set, you know, the way you're supposed to set them in the military at a 45 degree angle, they were shined. And, they were, and I woke up from this dream. For some reason, my what I took from the dream was, I have ambition. I thought, I'm not just a bum that's going down the drain here. I actually want to succeed. And I had never really thought about that before. You know, I'd sort of had adopted kind of the hippie ethos of, uh, you know, if I succeed, it's at the expense of somebody else. And I don't, I want to have solidarity with my brothers and sisters. So I, it would be, I'd be an egomaniac if I said I was ambitious and I wanted to succeed. But after this dream, I said to myself, you know, I do want to succeed. I don't want to be a bum the rest of my life. And that was one of kind of many sort of turning pro moments for me. But to talk about the concept a little bit more, is that what you'd like me to sure, do? Sure. Yeah. Notice? That's a great story that exemplifies it. And yeah. And so explain it for the listener. What, uh, what it does it mean to, to turn pro? Okay. It's like, you know, when we're struggling and we're lost and we're and resistance is beating the hell out of us and we just can't get it together. We're just going from defeat to defeat to defeat. And we kind of ask ourselves, why? What's wrong with me? You know, am I sick? Am I crazy? Am I, you know, whatever, you know? Do I have bad genes or I was born under a bad sign? And then the way I that kind of worked for me was I thought, what my real problem is, is I'm thinking like an amateur. I'm not in this for real. I'm dabbling at this. When adversity comes along, I fold. When it feels like a rough day, I just throw in the towel. You know, I don't, I, my thinking is short term. It's instant gratification. I'm not in it for the long haul. I don't have a plan, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought if I could just change my mindset, instead of thinking like an amateur, start thinking like a pro. You know, the example I, I, I use these days uh, uh, is Kobe Bryant. And I think, you know, he was like a consummate pro, you know, and to me at least, in the sense that he was up at the crack of dawn. You know, he had a family, he loved his family, he spent time with his family. But when it was time to go to the gym, he was there ahead of everybody else. He did his weight training before everybody else. And if Kobe was hurt, I mean, he was like the most famous guy of all, I think, for playing through injuries, right? I mean, he had to like break and tear his Achilles before they could finally get him out of a game. Right. And I think that's the professional attitude, that when adversity strikes, you, you work through the adversity, you know, you, you don't fold like an amateur. And so I, I thought that flipping that switch, it's possible to flip that switch in your head and say to yourself, I'm not an amateur. I'm a professional. And the next step after that, sorry for waxing long-winded here. This is fantastic. Please. Give the long version here. A, an amateur has amateur habits and a professional has professional habits. And so to the part of turning pro in your mind is, is adopting, identifying first, and then adopting the habits that a professional has. Even a simple thing is just getting up early every morning, you know, doing some kind of physical exercise, establishing a plan of the day. You know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then adhering to it. Those are the habits of a professional. Whereas uh, it's like, I don't know, are you familiar with the show Breaking Bad? Did you ever watch it when it was on? It's 
funny, my girlfriend Diana and I were watching it now. You know, we're we're at home and we're watching it. And if you look at the the characters in Breaking Bad, they all go from one screw up to another, right? As you're watching them, it's like, please, you know, don't go back into that ring. He is coming. But they just have self-destructive amateur habits all the way through. And I've lived that way for years and years. And so to me, flipping the switch from being in, thinking of yourself as an amateur to thinking of yourself as a professional makes all the difference in the world. And so it doesn't mean you're getting paid yet necessarily. It means- Right, in fact, oh yeah, that's a big point. Forget about being paid, it's all mental, you know? Right. Because once you think of yourselves as a professional, you're probably still not gonna be paid. I mean, I think for me, it was like another 20 years or something before I made right. a dollar in that field I wanted to make it in. But I was a professional. I was working towards, had long range thinking, I had good habits, and I was working, you know, learning my craft and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's interesting, you can see that played out so starkly in sports, right? Uh, in in yes. my world of wrestling, you know, you, know, you look at guys who, who go on to become, guys and men and women now, who go on to become Olympic champions, world champions, they are the person first. They're the professional first, and then the gold medal comes. It doesn't yes. come the other way around. It doesn't, the success doesn't come. And then they say, you know what, now, now I'm a professional. Yeah. You know, one story I've always wished I could really hear the real details is Kurt Warner's story. The, the St. Louis Rams, you know, the Hall of Fame sure. quarterback, right? Where he was supposedly working in a grocery store, right? He was out of the game. Yeah, that's right. And I would be fascinated to know what he was doing there because I am sure that he was working on football 14 hours a day. He probably, he maybe he technically did work at a grocery store, but I'm sure he was down at the local high school, you know, having the wide receivers run routes for him and stuff like that and waiting for that call that he knew was going to, and he was ready when the call came. He so was doing like the professional say, habits. He was a pro. I would love to hear the true story on that. Yeah, that's great. I just wrote his name down. I'm going to try to get him on the podcast. So if anybody out there is yeah, listening be great. as a connection, uh, let's get Kurt Warner on the show. Yeah, what a, what a fantastic story. Because yeah, you know that he was, he was the grocery, he was working at a grocery store, but he was a pro at football at that point, doing the things that professionals do so that when the, when the opportunity came, he was prepared. And you talk about when, like when you go pro, like you're making a commitment. And I always find that like, it's easier to, to, simpler to do things when you make a commitment. Let me give an example. So I, I have a sweet tooth and a friend of mine does this, this challenge every summer. Uh, it's actually Dr. Gilbert for the listeners, uh, the success hotline host. I interviewed him back in episode 33, but every summer he has a 98 day challenge where you go, it's the seven C challenge where you, there's no cake. You don't need any cake, candy, cookies, chocolate, cola, chips, and then the seventh C is complaining. No C, like seven C's, right? None of those. Sounds for like hell days. to me. It sounds <laughs> like hell, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's from Memorial Day to Labor Day. It's 98 days. And, and I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I'll, I'll just do something else. Plus my diet's pretty good. I'm pretty healthy, whatever, right? Uh -huh. So one, uh, last year, two years ago now, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I committed to it. But once I made the commitment, it was actually easy. It was actually really easy. I'm cutting my kids' birthday cakes all summer long and people are like, oh, you want a cake? No, I don't, I'm, I don't do that. That's not what I do, right? And once you make that commitment, and I feel like that's the same with this idea of going pro. Once, once you make that commitment, you're maybe leaving the comfortable life behind, but does it get in some way simpler or some way easier once you make that commitment of going pro? I think it absolutely does because now you're sort of, you're like the Blues Brothers. You're, you're on a mission. 
you know, in a way, being a writer is easy in the sense that if you're, let's say you're going to write a novel, you know you've got a block of time like two years that it's going to take you to do. There's no way to beat that, right? You're going to have to do that. So if you commit to that, then it's just like that 90 day, 98 day challenge. It does help. I think somehow, I'm just thinking about it as you're saying it now, Jim, having a time period on it, putting a block of time there helps somehow. Sure. You know? That deadline. And, uh, the trick is when the block, when the 98 days are up, that you don't immediately start binging, you know. Oh, I slipped you just start right away. Another ninety-eight day <laughs> right. challenge. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but it makes it finite, right? When you have that finite date, it, it helps. Yeah. Oh, I wanted. It was a story I wanted to tell you. I have a friend from Greece. His name is Hermes Melisinidis, and he won the gold medal in the floor exercise gymnastics in the uh, Atlanta Games. I think it was ninety-six. Right. And uh, he told me this story that he, you know, he. You could actually look this up on YouTube. He performed this incredible floor exercise, you know, nine point, whatever it was, right? And he got interviewed afterwards by this uh, journalist. And the journalist said, what is it? She was kind of in awe of him. And she said, what was it like to perform, you know, the exercise of your life right under the, the moment, you know? And he said that he had to kind of bite his tongue. He was like furious at her. But he didn't want to embarrass her, so he just kind of gave kind of the cliche answer. But what he said he was thinking was, he says, you don't understand what a world-class athlete is at all. I've done this exercise 5,000 times better than what I just did here on the Olympic floor. You know, this was not a fluke. This was not the performance of my life. This is what I do. This is, you know, this is my, you know, this yep. is what I am. And I think that's... I'm sure Tom Brady, you know, when he runs the two, a two minute drill and everybody goes, Oh my God, how did you do that? You know? I mean, if you talk to him, I'm sure he would say he wouldn't be arrogant about it. I don't think he'd say, look, I've trained for this, you know, my entire life since I was, you know, eight years old. So that's, that is kind of the professional mindset. I think that if we can adopt that, that really helps. In the professional you've said self validates like so many, so oftentimes we're looking for validation from the outside, right? Uh, the number of Twitter followers or, uh, yeah. you know, a publisher accepting our book for that matter, yeah. right? We're looking for that outside self validation. Uh, you say the professional self validates. Uh, tell me about that. You know, uh, we all do need the validation from the outside. Like you were saying that you interviewed my partner, Sean Coyne, right. A couple of weeks ago and he calls it, uh, 3PV, third-party validation, you know, that we all need somebody to pat us on the head. But I think the professional self-validates and really makes a point to do that. That uh, if you're a golf pro and, you know, you, you lost on the 72nd hole, right, and you're going, you know, you're, you have to go back to your hotel or wherever it is, if you're Rory McIlroy, if you're Tiger Woods or whatever, and you say, okay, I screwed up here, I screwed up there, but God damn it. I put four good, really good rounds together, you know, and there was a certain point where I could have fallen apart in the final round and I didn't, you know, and I got to give myself props for that. Just like, in other words, the, what you hope your coach is going to tell you or the media is going to tell you, you sort of have to train yourself to tell yourself that like uh, right now, we're, while we're kind of sequestering, 
my girlfriend Diana and I, we take this hike up some really steep hills in the morning. And I, I always make it a point on the way back to like validate her and validate the two of us, you know, we, you know, we did it, you know, we got up, we, we yeah. really did it. And I think it, it really does help. It's another kind of, it's a professional habit. The amateur has amateur habits and a professional has professional habits. I'm sure that I bet Kobe Bryant, I don't know this for a fact, but I mentioned when he finished his workouts, he sat down and he said to himself, you know, I did this good. I didn't do that so good, but he took stock and he gave himself credit. He, yeah. It's like putting money in the bank, you know, like paying yourself. Yep, absolutely. So you write for almost 30 years before you get a published novel. What did it feel like when you, you got your first novel published? What did it feel like when you saw one of your books made into a movie? I mean, what, what did that feel like? Well, I hated the movie, but other than that, <laughs> but you know, this is sort of a, probably a typical story of anybody, Jim. It's like when it finally, when the break finally happened, it was easy as pie. It was like falling off a log. It was like, so many bad breaks had happened that I, you know, it's like you lose at blackjack so many times. Finally, you get on a roll and it's just, it's easy at that point. Things fell into place really fast on that one. And it was like a, just a piece of cake. And, and it did feel great. And at the time I thought, you know, if I die now, at least I'd got one book out there, you know? And, and I really felt like it sort of justified my entire life. Kind of a crazy way to think about it. But that was like 20 books, 20 books ago. So it, so it did feel good. It wasn't a nothing thing. And to this day, I still feel good about it. Yeah, yeah. And you should. You, you've impacted the world in so many ways, and, and you're living out you know, who you fully are. And that's what so many, so many people want to do. A friend of mine, uh, Mark McLaughlin, Dr. Mark McLaughlin, who's a right. client and uh, I think a friend of yours as well. Um, right. Mark has, and he's also published his book with, with Sean uh, Coyne, who, who we talked about. But he said that you have a trick that he's tried that has worked for him. And he said that, that you will force yourself to sit at your computer with a blank page at a dedicated time every day. And he says that if you do this, that you're your muse just seems to come to you, right? It doesn't set, you know, it's not about setting necessarily these lofty goals, but just showing up at the same time every day. And I think you talked about that maybe in the war of art as well. Is that a process that has worked for you to help defeat the resistance that, that we're all facing and whatever it is that we want to do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it works for anybody. It's like, I have a saying that it says, uh, put your ass where your heart wants to be. <laughs> which meaning if you want to write, sit down at the typewriter, you know, if you want to paint, you know, put your body in front of an easel. And my, my goal usually when I sit down for a day of work of, at the keyboard, I'm not holding myself to any standard of quality or anything. All I want to do is put in the time. All I want to do is put in the time and do the best I can. And because like I say, I believe we didn't never got to talk about the muse, but I believe in the muse. I believe in the goddess that flies overhead and gives artists inspiration. And I think when she's flying overhead, kind of like Santa Claus and looking down on us, all she wants to see is that you're hard at work. You know, if she sees you in the dance studio, she sees you on the meditation cushion, sees you in the wrestling gym. That's all she can ask of you. You know, it warms her heart to see you hard at work, whatever it is. And at some point, she will uh, give her gifts to you. And you can't force them, 
But, you know, so that's all I really try to do is just put in the time. And at the end of the day, I don't judge anything or anything. All I say is, did I put in the time? Did I put in the effort? And if I did that, then that's good enough. I validate myself for that. Because the other thing, it's kind of a commonplace with writers. You might do a, write some pages on Tuesday. And if you were to read them afterwards, you say, man, this really sucks, you know? And then you pick them up again on Thursday, you go, wow, this is great, you know? So in other words, you can't even judge. You can't judge even if you wanted to, to say, oh, I did good today. All you can do is say, I, I put in the time. You know, I, I, I always, I think of, of writing for me as like a practice, like a yoga practice or a martial arts practice. It's a lifelong thing. And every day I'm going to put in my time and, and do it. I'm a big fan of the phrase, perfect is the enemy of good enough. And it's so reassuring, Steve, to hear you say that, that we just have to show up. We don't have to be perfect every day. We don't have to be perfect every time we practice our craft. We have to show up and we have to give it our best effort. Uh, and, and knowing that failure and, and mistakes and errors and, and crap work is, is going to happen but that's the process and that's following our muse. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about writing is that the pages that you do on Tuesday are still there Wednesday morning. You can revise them. You can make them better. You can throw them out, you know, and I, it's the same in sports too. You know, you maybe Tuesday, you didn't have such a great workout, you know, your partner defeated you or whatever you do in wrestling. I don't know how wrestling works, that's right. but, uh, but Wednesday you'll come back and you'll, and you'll do better, you know, or you'll keep at it. Steve, we talked about failure in, in the role that failure has played in your success. Um, can you tell us about a time, like a, is there a specific time that really stands out in your mind, a specific moment of failure? Maybe it was a rejection. Maybe, you know, maybe it was something else that, that you failed at that really stands out in your mind that, that brought self-doubt. Or maybe it was just a lesson for you because I know you've, you've even published books after you know, some of your super successful books that failed. Um, yes. But is there a time that really sticks out in your mind of failure that, that yeah, can no, resonate with you? I said you were going to ask this question, Tim. That's right. And I just think that I was thinking about it. And I think there were like so many moments. I can't even remember <laughs> them all. You know, there, so there was no real turning point in, in that sense in terms of, of the, this is the final failure that I can't, you know, I can think of so many. I, I can't even begin to put them down. How about one of your one of your early books, one of your early uh, novels, one of your early attempts at writing that got rejected that um, made you kind of second guess if if you're going to be good enough at this? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one moment that was a little bit of a turning point for me. This was like uh, the third novel that I had written. Each one took maybe two years full time and longer than that because I, I was working and stuff. And the first two never even came close, you know? And the third one, I had really high hopes where I was living, I was driving a cab in New York and living with my cat in my little apartment in New York. And I finished this one and I, you know, the, I, the only people I could show it to were like friends, other writers and stuff like that. And, you know, it was one of those moments where people are so embarrassed to answer, to give you a straight answer, you know? <laughs> it was just obviously like, it was so bad, you know? And I, I really thought, I really thought for the first time in my life, should I hang myself or should I just shoot myself, you know? And I wondered, I was really worried what would happen to my cat? Who's going to take care of my, you know? Did you have truly suicidal thoughts? Definitely. Wow. You know, 
Um, I don't want to make light of it because I, yeah, I wasn't right. really at the brink of it, but I mean, I was really, but I was definitely thinking about it. Yeah. And then this is, and I'm, I'm a believer that sometimes breakthroughs come from these moments. And the breakthrough for me was I sort of, I woke up one, one morning and I thought, why don't I go to Hollywood? I thought, you know, I've failed as a novelist. Why don't I go out to LA and I can fail as a screenwriter? And I, and I thought, uh, and as soon as I said that, I thought, that's oh, a great idea. I was like on board in a second. I thought, you know, I've worked in advertising. I know what a storyboard is. I know what a camera is. I know how to do, you know, I, I know how, I know what film is, you know, go out there and I'll try. And that, you know, the clouds parted. And I thought that for like for many years too. But so that was one definite moment of intense failure when that, when that book just fizzled. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, your story is, is inspiring. It's entertaining for the listener who has bought in and said, listen, you know, I've, I've got this muse. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, it's, I've been stuffing it down and I've really just not made that commitment to turn pro and, and to, to pursue it for the person who's thinking about, or maybe during this conversation has flipped that switch and said, I'm going pro. What would you recommend? What's something they can do in the next day or two, the next 24 to 48 hours, something that they can do to really start moving towards doing that thing that they want to do and making that commitment to themselves? That's a great question. I mean, one thing I would say is don't quit your day job. You know, don't do anything radical because that can be a form of resistance too. You know, mm -hmm. there's so many stories of, let's say it's a writer like James Patterson, the super successful thriller writer or venture writer, whatever he is. He used to be, I think he was the head of J. Walter Thompson, a big advertising agency in New York. And every morning he would come in at 5.30, lock the door and work for two hours on his novels. And then when 7.30 or whenever it was rolled around, he opened the door and he went to work. You know, called the, started the meetings, da, 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 da. So I would say just, if you do feel that you know what your calling is, take the first step, whatever it, whatever it is, you know, put your ass where your heart wants to be. If it's you're ready to paint, get, get the easel, do take the first step. And I'm also a believer in starting before you're ready mm. and don't, don't feel like, Oh, I've got to get all my ducks in a row. I've got to plan this. I've got to plan that. I've got to research, you know, just start. You know, if you, if you are a writer, start writing tomorrow. Pick an, an hour, block out an hour, two hours, start writing. Even if it's, you know, just an outline or whatever it is, but, but start. And remember that it's, it's a lifelong commitment. And day one leads to day two, to day three, to day four. And at some point, maybe, maybe after you've written a couple of things, then you can quit your, then you can quit your job or something like that. But uh, yeah. And also read The War of Art and read Turning Pro. Those are, you know, two books of mine that I think will kind of have a lot of this stuff in, in much greater detail. They will have significant impact. Either one of those books will have significant impact on anybody who reads them. So for the listener, I do encourage you to check those out. And as always, I'll have those listed out, just links to, you know, you can buy them on Amazon uh, in the action plan, just jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your hands on that. Steve, where can the listener find you, follow you, buy your books, et cetera? I have a website and it's just my name, www.stephenpressfield.com, Stephen with a V, and that's where you can find me. 
Excellent. For the listener, of course, I'll have that link in the action plan. I uh, have links to Steve's social media, et cetera. Um, he even has a free course on his website. So it's a 27-minute course. Yeah, as well, I forgot right? about that. There's a little kind of video or audio course there to get started on. And that is on, yeah, that's uh, based kind of on the, on the book, The War of Art, right? The five-part mini course. Yeah. yeah, excellent. So I recommend that for the listener as well. Steve, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Incredible hey, conversation. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure. Thanks to Mark for introducing us. Likewise. And uh, thank you for the great questions. It was a painless, a piece of cake to work with you. Thanks a lot. That's the goal. And we'll do it again. Absolutely. I would love to. And, and as always for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. Mm-hmm.